the joy is to create the vision, you know, and, and you have to do all that tedious work to create the vision. But that's where the joy is going to be. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Hugo Moro is on the show. Hugo is a Seattle-based Cuban-American artist who got his start in the art world in New York City in the 1970s, where he attended the Pratt Institute and the Fashion Institute of Technology. Hugo would go on to obtain his Master's of Fine Arts at Florida International University in Miami, where he also served as an adjunct professor. With collections in Miami, Oklahoma City, Napa Valley, Havana, New York, London, Denmark, and Seattle, Hugo has clearly made a splash internationally, but he's also worked in many capacities in the art world, a graphic designer, an art director, and an art dealer. But his current gig is studio artist at Project 106 Artist Studios at Pioneer Square in Seattle. How cool is that? This is where he creates an eclectic and diverse body of work, including public installations for the city of Seattle, mixed media on panels, mixed media on chromogenic print, found objects on panels, and even burned chairs on walls, which he talks about during the interview. Hugo is one of those artists that mastered the fundamentals of what lay people might think of as art. For example, some of his graphite drawings are almost photorealistic, but the majority of Hugo's work is not as straightforward or accessible as a photorealistic drawing. When you look at Hugo's body of work, you realize this is a guy who isn't concerned with mass appeal or even commercial success. He's far more interested in creating something unique that springs from his soul, without an agenda and without chasing anything beyond the goal of perhaps evoking emotions or questions. I met Hugo through a mutual friend, Jenny Thomas. Earlier this year, she sent me a link to his website, which I've included in the show notes. After looking at his work, I knew I had to hear his story. Artists like Hugo fascinate me because they have a particular type of creative courage that I've always admired. And that's the courage to dive into a world that is not clearly defined, has no concrete rules, no clear path to success, and is riddled with challenges along the way, which probably causes most aspiring artists to quit long before they're able to make a living in the art world. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Seattle-based artist Hugo Morrow. Thank you for making time for me, Hugo. Really appreciate it. I appreciate being invited, Brian. You know, we, we have a common connection. How I found you was through a common friend, uh, Jenny. How do you know Jenny, Thomas? I know Jenny through common friends. You know, we meet regularly, and that's how I met her and her partner, V. So I think since we arrived in Seattle um, six years ago, we met her pretty pretty quickly, pretty soon after that. And she lives in the neighborhood. Do you live in your studio or is that just your workspace? No, um, I live on, on Queen Anne and I have a studio space on Pioneer Square. So now I'm home. I, I looked at your studio space online and the street view of it. It looks really cool. Um, it looks dedicated just to, to artists. Yeah, that, that whole area in Pioneer Square, this, uh, I think it's called the TK uh, building, uh, was established before I got here as uh, work, live work spaces for artists. And then for culture, which is a local facility that handles grants that derive from um, certain taxes that are implemented, I think for hotels. So they take those those taxes and, and, and funnel them to artists or cultural activities, cultural facilities in the city. So anyway, that's, that's for culture. And my studio is right below that, or was right below that. Through the crisis, the COVID crisis, it became really difficult to access the studio. And so I just recently informed my landlord that I was going to be leaving at the end of September. And I'm waiting to hear about studio space in Georgetown. So right now I'm in, I'm working from home best that I can. And the couple of, uh, one project I'm doing is pretty, it's, it's geared to, to, it's a photography storytelling project. So that's kind of what's, um, well, what's adapted. 
to be done from home this year. It's been going on for 12 years in person throughout the world. And this year when they chose Seattle as the host city, they had to adapt it to do it online. So, you know, we're dealing with all of these constant changes. What are your concerns from a business standpoint and creatively that COVID brings to to the table for you as an artist? Yeah, I rely on projects funded through the Office of Arts and Culture and through grants that are facilitated through for culture. So the one project that I had that's been put on hold is a, it's a temporary installation, public installation project that's been not put on hold, but it's been pushed back. So I don't know when I'm scheduled to do that. And so the funds that are, that are going to be coming in from that are now in play. I don't know when they're going to be coming in. I have a couple of so- solo exhibits next year, which have also been delayed, and the time of them is also in play. So my production for the shows has been also delayed. So this sort of this uncertainty, I'm sure I'll have time to pull them together once I get the dates. But although those are not necessarily, well, one of them is, is funded through a grant. So I won't, I won't have access to, to the second part of the grant until the exhibition is manifested. So that's, you know, another, um, and then, you know, paying for storage space, being between studios, costs of moving and um, all, of, all of those um, things are sort of dealing with it as, as they come, you know, on a daily basis. It's like figuring out when to pack the studio and move it, waiting for the maybe possibility of having the, the other studio become available and how do I, you know, juggle putting it in storage and then, and then taking it back out of storage. So, you know, we're all kind of dealing with uh, that level of uncertainty. So the, the Office of uh, Arts and Culture, is that what you called it? Yeah. Is that a city entity or a state entity? It's a Seattle uh, entity. Okay. So I would imagine that the city of Seattle has a pretty big interest in making sure that it's sort of considered an arts hub. And that's why they're providing grants to artists to kind of keep them in the city and keep them creating. Is that one of the reasons why you see artists gravitating toward metropolitan areas like Seattle and Miami and New York? Yeah, uh, definitely. Personally, I moved here from Miami. And I think that here in Seattle, these funds are much easier to access. I think I'm more proactive here in Seattle, so I can say that those funds were and also available in Miami, but here they definitely are. And yes, they definitely are available because um, the city wants to foster artists living in the city, and I think the, the mindset of the city is to engage artists more in a cultural worker kind of format rather than, um, I'm not going to say rather than, um, one of the elements that I see more clearly here in Seattle is how the artist can engage in the community as a cultural worker. And so the model that, I, that I'm understanding as I see it here in Seattle is that a lot of these grants are geared to bring artists and art to communities that have less access. To, to culture um, on, a, on a daily basis. So I, I, I find that really um, interesting and, and you know, rewarding to be able to, to make work yeah. that gets shown that way rather than in galleries, which is fine too. But it seems to have a larger purpose when you're putting it out in, in the public arena. So in, in terms of the business of art, the, the business of art, to me and to I think a lot of folks is a little opaque and hard to understand because when for instance when I walk into a gallery just as a layperson I'm not I'm not an artist but when I walk into a gallery I don't see a lot of transactions occurring and you know the I don't see what's happening there's not like a cash register 
you know, I, I don't know how long those those paintings sit or those pieces of art sit and how much they go for. And it seems to be a really tough business, just a tough way to survive. Can you tell us more about just the business of art and what the challenges are and, and what the benefits are, frankly, too, of, of having that different modality of surviving? My, my first exposure to the art world was back in the 80s in the East Village when there were a lot of galleries coming, every storefront that was available with a lot of low rent back then was being turned into a gallery. And I, I started to do something with a partner. And I have no business acumen at all. <laughs> this partner of mine was more aggressive. So basically, it was let's put on a show kind of thing, you know. Um, so later on, probably in the 2005, you know, like, I don't know, 20 years later, I became more involved in the art scene in Miami, and I got close to gallerists and saw a little bit of what a gallerist does. And I mean, it's very social, very business, uh, like I would imagine any other business. It's very aggressive, and, and you have your clientele, and you follow up, and you're constantly contacting the press to promote, and you know, it's, it's, it's a heavy-duty PR heavy business. Sounds like a hustle. It's a hustle. It's a definitely a hustle and, and you're hustling, you know, art. And, and some gallerists, some of the, people, the gallerists that I became familiar with really loved art, you know, and they were doing contemporary local artists and giving people opportunities, students out of college and, and artists from, in Miami, especially artists that were coming out of Cuba. So, it was a good market. I could see that. And generally, the, the galleries really were, were ethical and, and, and treated the artists fairly as far as I, I could tell and gave them a lot of opportunity. And that's one source of exposure and income for artists. It's difficult to have a gallery represent you. They want a certain reliability as far as product. And myself, I don't make art that way. My art varies a lot. It's not for the wall kind of art. It's not for above the couch kind of stuff that you buy to decorate your apartment. Although it could be, it could be, um, I don't want to say my art is difficult because a lot of artists say that and it sounds kind of weird. But yeah, I mean, burnt chairs, hanging a pair of burnt chairs on your wall is not something that everybody, <laughs> you know, is, go is going to go for. So. You know, so that's one something that the gallerist wants, and some galleries are specialized in selling burnt chairs. You know, I mean, they're they're that much uh, in, interested in, in art that's that's risky or, or challenging. Very specific. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you know, uh, so so that's just one aspect. I mean, a lot of artists are are educators. You know, a lot of artists are educators, and the, their main income comes from being art educators. A lot of artists have other side jobs, not necessarily having anything to do with art. I mean, some, some industries that require a certain amount of creativity, some, some of us, I did graphic design for many years. But then you have grants that are available and, and you have to be a good grant writer or uh, you know, be somehow versed in, in grant writing so you can... Um, apply for that. Residencies too, they have stipends. And, um, you know, selling work out of the studio. So the, the sources of income is, are, you have to be very creative on that end too. So, yeah. I've noticed that you, you've done it all. You, you were adjunct professor, you were a ga working at a gallery, you were, you were gra doing graphic design. I mean, it sounds like you've done pretty much every Every form of income generation within the art world, you've been in it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I, I came to the United States when I was 12, and, and I, I, I kind of had this fantasy of what an artist was, you know? At the age of 12? Yeah. I think, well, not maybe not at 12. I think when Picasso turned 90, maybe in 72, Life magazine 
put him on the cover. And I think that I had been exposed to some art before. Egyptian art was my thing, you know. So I would go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and, and be like totally awestruck by all of that beauty. And, but I really didn't know about the art world. And then that, I, I think it was right around when, when that Picasso life cover came out that, I mean, it might have, a lot of different things might have made, you know, rung at that time. I mean, he was Spanish and, you know, it, it, it rang a lot, of, a lot of bells for me. And I thought, oh, that's, that's something, you know. And I think I was already being sort of like admired because of my drawings in middle school and, you know. So I wanted to, to be an artist. But I think also the, I, the, I had no construct of how an artist made money. I, I didn't really access mentorship or counselors. I was not into following, you know, a lot of um, instructions, let's just say. So, um, so the ideas, I didn't really, you know, wasn't able to like integrate a lot of sort of logical ways to, to make money doing art to proceed so I kind of gave up I, I went to Pratt Institute and I didn't I wanted to do theater art I wanted to do fashion design and I just thought you know what somebody offered me a job doing graphic design I think one of my mentors sort of led me in that direction and and so I did a lot of production art you know art graphic design for many years in different industries and I did work in advertising and then I did work in publishing and did a lot of work in educational publishing. And then when I moved to Miami, I decided to go back to school because I hadn't finished my bachelor's degree back then. So I went back at a bachelor's and decided that I really needed to know more about contemporary art. And I went ahead and went for the master's degree. And, uh, you know, in between all those things, there was, you know, owning a gallery in, in the Lower East Side, being back in school, I did a lot of, you know, TA work, teaching assistance work, and I took care of the gallery, curating shows. No, not curating, really. It was, it was more like being a preparator, designing the shows. So let's go back a little bit. So age 12, this would have been early 60s, roughly? Age 12 was, was 66. 66. Okay. So mid, mid-60s, you move to a completely different country, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you wind up in New York City, which is I, I don't know that I could think of a more, you know, art-centered, crazy place to grow up. How big of a culture shock was that to move from Cuba? Was it Havana, Cuba? No, we lived in a small town in the center of the island. It's going to be like 20,000, 30,000 people. Oh, okay. You know, I, I don't think, you know, I'm going to say a lot of these things that kind of sound a little like sort of formulaic. I don't think I belong there, you know. I, I remember being very interested in film at an early age, a lot of reading. Um, one of my aunts lived in the States since the mid-50s, so I knew that there was another world. And so when we landed in New York, I don't know that I felt a lot different than some 17-year-old American kid ending up in New York going to college. You know, I, I think there was, you know, not knowing the language, there was that kind of practical, you know, discomfort. But I just kind of think I remember being at this, at this new cool place I was going to live in. And you went right to art school, didn't you? Weren't you in a, a school for the arts right away? Well, I went to a regular, uh, you know, grade school I was in I was a couple of years back so I was in the fifth grade and sixth grade in, in public school then I went to junior high school middle school and that's when I there were art teachers you know specialized art teachers and art classes and the teachers started complimenting me you know on my drawing ability and I picked up English pretty fast and I, I'm very good at reading so I got moved along pretty quickly. So but after being here three years in school, I got some kind of residency scholarship at the Brooklyn Museum. My teacher, Hope Irvine, in the seventh grade, she's still around and I'm trying to track her. She really started talking about public art 
very early, was the first person I heard talking about public art from studio artists. And she hooked up with Joe Slice. Joe Slice were the people that used to do the light shows at the Fillmore East. So I was like 15, 16, and I was hanging out with these Joe Slice guys on some basement on Houston and being backstage at the Fillmore East watching these people do these light shows. So that world just, I kind of like walked into that world, but wasn't really in it. I was kind of in the periphery and um, then, you know, started working. And I did, I did go to the high school of art and design. You know, I, I applied for high school and went to the high school of art and design. That's when the trouble started because I liked nightclubbing a lot more than I liked going to school. <laughs> and so, you know, I applied to Pratt Institute. I got into Pratt Institute, but by then, you know, what is it called? The, the die was cast. You know, I was, I was not, not going to go down that path. What path is the Pratt Institute? Well, the Pratt Institute path would have been, you know, getting a, a, a BFA in, in some sort of art discipline, you know, fashion design or theater arts, and joining that industry, you know, uh, as a full-fledged college graduate and following whatever path those people follow in those industries. I right. wanted to just make money and pay my rent and, and party. So, you know, so that's what I did. And during those years, that's when I got into the East Village art scene. And, and that was a lot more, you know, we were all kids. So there wasn't any sort of hierarchy. You know, it was just all kids, you know, in our 20s, setting up galleries. And some of, some of us, you know, were very uh, savvy. And, and we're able to promote some really good artists. And, and um, you know, and now they have, they're still very successful and middle-aged and older. Did you ever cross paths with Andy Warhol? Yeah, I did. Uh, when I had uh, our gallery on, on 11th Street, there was an artist named Lady McCready. And she was British and we met her and really liked her and, and gave her a show. And she was good friends with Andy. And so Andy came to the opening and I only remember having a little conversation with him with the alligators came up for some reason. I don't know why. So yeah, yeah, those people weren't hard to like, you know, cross paths with, you know, it was all very, you know, everything was happening below 14th street. So it's, it's not a big, a big area. Yeah. So you said you got interested in film and what, why do you think you never really went in that path? I mean, you were, you were in the heart of a city that I guess offered that, as a possibility for you, but what, how did you end up where you are now versus in a more film oriented world? Well, I mean, let's, I, I think when, when, when I this sort of dismissed the idea of culture shock, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, right? Yeah, I think I still have culture shock, you know, and, and I think it takes, it takes the form of feeling still, you know, on some levels, feeling less than feeling like an alien, you know, feeling an, like an outsider. So even though I didn't, I didn't have access to, to those ideas, then I didn't feel like I belonged in, in those places. I, I was very insecure, you know. So part of the, um, of the whole acting out with, with um, not being resistant to following instructions is maybe that I, even, that I didn't know the concept, you know, of what it meant to... You know, I kept on hearing, you know, I kept on hearing people talk about mentors. And I used to think that that was something that white kids had, not, not something that a, a Latin kid would have access to. Do, do you think that your, your sense of not belonging stems from your socioeconomic background, the fact that you're Cuban, you're, you know, born in Cuba and, you know, spent the first 12, 12 years of your life there? I mean, where do you track that, that sense of, of not belonging? And, and how do you think that it has influenced your art? I mean, definitely socioeconomic, being a Cuban immigrant, although we were considered political refugees, which is like a little higher up, you know, with privileged immigrants just because, you know, we can be used as uh, commodified into the American anti-socialist agenda. Which gave me a little bit of, you know, that, that knowledge gave me some sense of belonging and power. You know, knowing that I have been exposed to socialism and, and, and knew the rationale behind it and, and knew that that was not happening here. Mm -hmm. 
And so I've always been very sort of wanting to be kind of bougie, you know, but, oh, but also having that socialist mindset of what's fair and socially just, right? But that didn't fit quite right, or I didn't know that I could verbalize it. You know? So, so, so the, the question was, what kept me? So, yeah, so being Cuban was kind of, you know, here or there. Being gay was, was uh, an issue. You know, there was a lot of, even though I was very verbal about it and very out from an early age, there's also, there's always that sort of internalized, you know, phobia that affected how comfortable I felt around other people. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of shame attached to it, or was, you know, in the, in the 70s, even though it was, you know, well, it's still to this day. I mean, I think, oh, yeah. you know, it's it's still a battle to be accepted and to be, I mean, just the, the battle for equality is still yeah. happening. Yeah. But yeah, to be, to be gay, Cuban, a Cuban immigrant or refugee, but, but I would imagine you felt some sense of, of being fortunate to land in New York City where your identity is being accepted more in New York City than it would in probably any other city in the country at that time. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I was coming out right around the time of Stonewall. I think I really, that was kind of like my last push out the door. I read something in the paper about the riots in downtown and that they were homosexuals. And I think until that point, I didn't really know how large a community there was. So I don't know that I even thought about what was going on beyond, you know, beyond New York, but I was very comfortable in New York. I think to the degree that a 16-year-old can be grateful. I was grateful. <laughs> I don't know that they're that self-aware, but yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah. 16-year-olds. I, mean, I, I don't know. Later on, I, you know, later on, I, I you know, and I do. I am very great. In hindsight, yeah. yeah. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So it's interesting that you bring up this issue of socialism in, in Cuba and Cuban immigrants being used to, I guess, carry out this anti-socialist narrative. Uh, and the reason that's interesting to me is that I have some Cuban friends and I, I know that I do a lot of reading, you know, I'm in, kind of into politics and it's, it's driving me nuts, the, the political culture that we're in right now. Mm. But it's odd for me to see Cuban Americans as political conservatives. And it seems to be more so with Cuban Americans than with other immigrants from other countries, that they tend to lean more conservative. Is it the anti-socialism aspect of it that you think drives them to that political party? Or what do you think that is all about? I've looked at your Facebook page, so I know where you stand <laughs> politically. <laughs> um, and I know you're not in that category, but I'm sure that you have friends that are from Cuba and family. And so you have a better sense of it than I do. Well, you know, I, I have ideas that I'm sure other people share with me. Working to make money generation after generation, you know, and, and creating some sort of business or industry. It's a fine thing. And that was taken from many, many Cuban families. And so there's, you know, there's a level of PTSD involved in that. You know, I, I mean, I think that that's, there's no question about it. I think that capitalism really lulls you into stupidity by telling you that you're going to be a millionaire tomorrow. You know, you too can be a millionaire. And I think Cubans of all, of all social strata in Cuba bought into that because we were a colony of the United States. So the idea of letting the rich get richer, because tomorrow I'm going to be one of them, I think is one of these ongoing problems with our society, right? And so that's been going on forever, you know. Yeah, the, the false narrative. Right, right. And so, so the, you know, they come here, uh, the Cubans, I mean, with 
a shared PTSD, you know, that even though they didn't lose millions, somebody they knew through the paper lost millions. And it wasn't right. I mean, on some level, these people work for these things and whether they share them or, or not, it was their property. So it was a very, it was a very sudden change. And even, I mean, 1950s, the early people, the, the sort of upper middle class that came in, in the early 60s, they were traumatized and, and they had the young children, those children were traumatized and their grandchildren were traumatized. And you still have a lot of that. And you have a lot of, you know, family loyalty where younger Cubans, less and less, but younger Cubans have that knee-jerk reaction to socialism because they're, they're being, you know, loyal to their, you know, parents and grandparents. And, and um, you know, it's, um, it's very confusing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we're, you know, I'm not, you know, philosopher in, in sociology or something like that, but it's, right. it has to be very complicated to like, you know, unravel all this stuff and, and put it in, in a place where it has some sort of logical order of why things are the way they are. But, you know, greed, I think, is the main factor. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to go back to this concept of uh, not feeling a, a sense of belonging somewhere and how that may have influenced your art. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and speculate that that lack of sense of belonging or a feeling of not belonging may have influenced your choices of mediums. Um, because you say maybe your art is not as accessible because it's you can't hang it on a wall, or if you do, it wouldn't be easy to hang a burnt chair on a wall. Uh, but you know, I, I'm looking at just the variety of mediums that you use, and it isn't the type of art that you would see on Amazon.com. You know, like oh, I need some art to to decorate my house. <laughs> I mean, you're you're making some choices that are not commercial choices. Clearly, these are you know installations that you're putting in on fences and benches. You're creating panels that have multimedia on the panels. It's hard to define them. Do you think that? somehow your lack of sense of belonging has driven you to those mediums, if that's a word, or media choices? Yeah, it has to. I think that um, craft, you know, whether it's like being very proficient in, in, in drawing or painting, you know, that's what I was being taught in school early on. And there wasn't a lot of exposure to contemporary art in, in the 70s in school, you know, at that point there was, uh, I remember a kid coming back from, um, from college to talk to, to us in high school and telling us, oh yeah, you got to go to the school because there they teach you how to make money. And he didn't use that term, but he used to, you know, how to do things, you know, and if you go to Pratt Institute, they'll have you throw an egg off the roof and go down and talk about it, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and this was like in the mid seventies, you know, so it, it was like, Oh, really throwing an egg off the roof. That's, you know, I do, I couldn't put two and two together, you know, and I was so, somewhat aware of, um, of what contemporary artists were doing then, but mostly really I was in love with fashion then. So I really wasn't aware of what was going on in the contemporary art, but already then there was a whole bunch of people doing very controversial, against the grain kind of art that had nothing to do with, I mean, there were political statements and actions that people were doing then that I was not really aware of. When I went back to school in, um, when I was 45, I, I already knew about these people historically, but I had really no, no connection to contemporary art in 2003, I guess is when I went back to school. And that's one of the reasons why I went back was to get really familiar in depth with what the art world was all about. But as far as, um, you know, rebelling, so, so I was rebelling against technique, you know, and rebelling is kind of like a self-serving kind of word. I'm really very lazy, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, and so it takes a certain love for technique and endurance. And I'm, I'm very good. You know, I mean, I, I can do photorealist graphite drawings 
until my back gets out. And, and, I, and I will do it uh, if I need something to say, if I need to say something in the medium, because the medium means something, you know, because everything means something. And I can use those symbols to add to the work. But as a form of rebellion, of revolution, because I don't want to follow the, the sort of demand, let's say, of the art market to produce something that's reliable for the gallerist right. or for the consumer. You know, it's like, I, I want a, a Moro because he's reliable. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this to mainly make a political statement. You know, it's like, yeah, let's just do it. Do it as, as off the grid as possible. You know, let's try and... and and, and, which in itself becomes becomes a technique too, you know, but um, but it's one that I like more, you know. It's how to how to be um, irreverent, mm-hmm. you know, and how to be irreverent in sort of um, coded ways, you know. I like that a lot. Yeah, I noticed that your graphite drawings are. I mean, some of the drawings are true photorealism. I mean, they're just striking uh, how photorealistic they are. And I think what it does for me, just as a layperson, because I'm not, you know, I've, I've studied art in college a little bit, but I'm not an artist and I don't know that world. But as a layperson, when I see drawings like that on your website, I'm like, okay, this guy knows, you know, he knows how to draw. He has the fundamentals of a good artist. Like you show that drawing to anybody, they're like, yeah, that's great art right there to a layperson. So you have that foundation that allows you to venture into these areas which are completely unconventional, like the jacket that you made, which is probably, I would imagine, a homage to your your love for fashion when you were younger. But that, you know, that jacket is just it's ornate, it's beautiful, and it looks like like a one-off. Like you this is not something that you do. This is not quintessential Hugo Moral. This is just something that you on a whim decided to pursue and you're able to do it because you have the core fundamentals that allow you to kind of stray and go on these frolics and detours comfortably. That's my perception anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. You know, I mean, I don't think it, I mean, it works that way for me. That's my story. You know, I, there are people making fantastic art that don't have that uh, initial academic, you know, origins or background, you know, and, and that's my, you know, that's, that's just the path that I happen to take. And, and um, no, I was, the thought was, you know, um, that that sort of sense of self-empowerment or freedom didn't really uh, manifest itself in me until like, you know, 15 years ago. You know, mm. that's when I started, when I started to really uh, get familiar with what being an artist is today that, there, there are no no limits unless you put them on yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I like that. So, if, if you were going to be speaking to a high school class, high school art class, and these are graduating seniors and they want to be an artist, what advice would you give to them in terms of art school, where to live? You know, art. When I say art school, I mean yes or no, right? You know, where to live how to find a community, how to find your tribe, how to find your voice and your, your medium? Well, you know, when I came back to school, the one thing that I tell people when I'm facilitating some art activity is um, this teacher that, that I had, um, Aramis O'Reilly, a Cuban man of color in Miami, who had just gotten out of um, graduate school at, you know, at an age, he must have been in his late 30s, early 40s. And something that he said, and I was already in my 40s, and I heard it, you know, he said, you're already an artist. You know, you're not here to become an artist. You're already an artist. Mm. You know? And so that is something that I, I would say to, to, to those seniors. I've also heard something that I can't attribute it to anybody right now, but it's like, if you want to be an artist, don't do art. Just go out and do whatever, which is kind of a little hippy-dippy or sort of existential or whatever, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but but it's, it's, it kind of makes sense in a way, you know? It's don't sort of like 
put your nose to the grindstone, you know, with this endeavor to achieve this thing, you know, mm -hmm. um, just, you know, chill and kind of try different things because it's, it's wide open, you know, it's just totally wide open. Well, it makes sense. I mean, th there, I interviewed a screenwriter uh, who recently passed away. Her name is uh, Bettina Gillawa. And one of her memorable quotes from her interview was that there is um, a story logic to life. And she's, a, she's sort of a biographical screenwriter. So she wrote the screenplay for McFarlane USA with Kevin Costner and, and all of these biographical movies, Bessie starring Queen Latifah. So what she's really interested in is the story logic of life and the things that make sense from a story standpoint in life to be able to put them on paper. And according to story logic, according to Bettina, whatever you chase runs away from you and whatever you run away from pursues you. So the best approach in life is to be and to, to not get too wrapped up in chasing something or running away from something just be. And it sounds like what you're, the advice that you got from that teacher and that you're giving to this hypothetical class of high school students is to not chase something too hard because at that point you are no longer an artist. You're a pursuer of something. You're a pursuer of a concept of art. Is that a fair that statement? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and that, I, I, that resonates with me even today, you know, there, there's a lot of times when, in, you know, in, in your daily sort of thoughts, you know, you, you kind of like uh, 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 see yourself pursuing, pursuing achievements. And, 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 um, and you know, I mean, that's just part of life. There are on, on every element, every, every situation has that part of it. But, but when that becomes, when that's in the forefront, you know, then it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good because... Um, the, the joy, and I'm not saying that, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the studio making plastic flowers. <laughs> that's, that's so wonderful, you know. But the joy is to, is to create the vision, you know. And, and you have to do all that tedious work to create the vision. But that's where the joy is going to be. Yeah, if you get recognition and somebody goes, you know, whatever, like this, you know, this is, this is pretty special for me. This is like a big pat on the back for my ego. It's like, wow, you know, but if, you know, I just came, came as a, you know, out of the sky, you know, but when you, when I find myself, I still find myself grinding my wheels about what I'm going to get out of it, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, it, that doesn't feel good because that's kind of comparing myself to a situation where I wouldn't get any, anything out of it. You know, right. and then I'm comparing. Yeah, I think we all do that. I mean, the choices that we make can be transactional mm -hmm. or they can be organically just flowing from a different place, a right. place that's just, right. you know, it, this, this is working. You know, I wanted to talk to you. You were open to share your story with me and whatever synergies flow from that. Great. You know, and, and I, I think that's just a, Something that we all struggle with because it's hard not to compare yourself. And I do it with other podcasters. You know, I look at their show art and I look at their guests and, you know, how did they get that, you know, that interview and, you know, look at my download numbers. And it's, but if you just do, if you approach it from the standpoint that I love talking to and connecting to people who are working in the art world. Yeah. And it's like, if all I get out of this is just this conversation and it doesn't even make its way into the podcast universe, it's still a gift. Yeah. So it's a good conversation. Now, what, what are, as an artist who is doing this full time, all in, what are the, the parts of your day, week, or month that really bother you and you could, you, if you had a choice, they would not be part of your day, week, or month? And Conversely, what are the things that you most take joy in doing? So when we moved to Seattle, we were very fortunate to buy into a co-op building that had a lot of deferred maintenance. And the only way that I could see moving it forward so that my, our investment wouldn't suffer was to get on the board and control everything. And so... 
that's been in my life for the last five years, dealing with a huge project. Well, for me, you know, 22 unit apartment building that needs all new siding and new windows that has really disagreeable. And by that, I don't mean disagreeable in, in a sort of personal way. I mean, they don't agree with me, neighbors, you know. And so that has been total painful experience. I mean, it's been like... <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like it. I, would, I could use not having that in my life. The thing that I love about, about it at the same time is that we are in the most beautiful spot that I've ever lived in, overlooking Elliott Bay. It's like, you know, paradise. I mean... That's a great neighborhood, too. It's a great neighborhood. It's right adjacent to Kinnear Park. You know, we have a puppy, you know. So that's all the good stuff that comes with these five years of pain, you know. And, and we have a great garden and that's been abandoned and we're like revitalizing the whole garden. So that is the joy of my life, you know. That, that is really where I get uh, my pleasure. And, and then the art is the work, you know. The art is, uh, is, is manifesting these, these ideas that are, you know, when I get a piece and, and I can look, sit back and look at it and go, oh, shit, that, that's good. You know, that has some really good qualities to it. And then a colleague comes by and tells me something about it where, you know, she acknowledges what I'm hoping, you know, other people see. You know, it's like that kind of makes my world stop a little bit, you know. Right. That's a high. And you can be, you know, you can be high all the time. Just <laughs> <laughs> so the, the high you're referring to is, is sort of the confirmation of, yeah. you know, you, you've made something that you are excited about, but when you see someone else confirm that it is indeed special, that's the high. Yeah. And so the, the last question I have for you is what projects are you currently working on and are excited about that listeners can look forward to seeing maybe in the next six months to a year? Okay, this is where I show you my book. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you know, I've been really fortunate the last, um, since we moved to Seattle. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful to Seattle and, and art culture here. You know, the way that the government, the local government supports the arts. And so out of that, I have a solo show coming up, a method gallery, where I am um, creating a garden out of... Um, plastic bottles, single-use plastic bottles, a very lush, well, the visual, you know, the, the, the projection is that it's going to be a extremely lush, sort of like the Wizard of Oz when it goes color, environment, immersive, that you're going to walk into and be sort of seduced by how beautiful it is. Mm. While it's, well, while it's made actually by, of single-use plastic that is a horrible pollutant. Mm -hmm. Then I have, I've been working on these chairs that I am um, manipulating to create some sort of ideas of conversation or communications. And so that is going to be a solo show at the Fort Culture Gallery sometime next year. We don't mm. know when. The city is building, I guess, the Department of Infrastructure Facilities. They're building a tunnel along from Fremont to Ballard and out to the water to channel stormwater. They're building a 20-foot tunnel, a 24-foot circumference tunnel. And that, for that, they have, a grant, they have given grants to about a dozen artists to do temporary art installations on the fencing around the construction sites. And mine is going to be over in Ballard by where Fred Myers is. There's already an artist there, and it's a very elegant installation that they've already put up. And I think mine is going to go up after that one comes down. I'm also working on a project through the Gates Foundation. It's the project that has been done worldwide now and it's a long-term AIDS survivors or, or, or HIV positive individuals. The project is called Storytellers for Change. It is through Positive Eyes and it is uh, through the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation and in Seattle is going to be 
housed at the Gates Foundation, some, some exhibition hall that they have over there. Mm. So I'm working with 12 Seattle individuals who are HIV positive, and we're doing storytelling. We're developing these seven to nine minute presentations talking about what our experiences have been. And also, and that's going to be married with photography. And we're being facilitated with the photography with a couple of really good photographers. One gentleman from South Africa. Anyway, they're, they're just wonderful people, the whole group of them. And, and we're doing the whole thing. I think I touched on it earlier. We're doing the whole thing through Zoom, where they would have, they used to have, you know, like intensive weekend workshops. Now we're doing it over like three months on Zoom. So that's challenging because it's, it's ongoing, it's slow. We're depending on media to move the project along. So, you know, I'm, I have quite a full plate. Yeah. Well, it's a, a lot of exciting projects going on and coming up this year and next year. If you could send me any links you have to those projects, I'll put them in your show notes when your episode launches. Okay. And uh, listeners who are interested in Hugo's work can go to his website, which is hmoro, M-O-R-O dot M-E. That's M as in Mary E. And I'll put that uh, website in the show notes. Um, Hugo, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and uh, spending so much time talking about your journey. It's been fascinating. Well, I feel very honored. Thank you for asking me. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.